So hi, so today we're talking with Pat Connerty, who's the uh, who who's the author of this book, which I've just recently bought. Pat looks very yep. interesting. Yep, thank you. Um, and um, we're talking about the Commons. Um, so first of all, Pat, is it a is it a singular or a plural word? So it, so do I say what is it or what are they? Um, yeah, Commons is a plural word. Yeah, it's, okay, it's so a, the commons are yeah. they, okay. And and what's the definition? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's the, the definition basically can be summed up as um, there's something called common 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 pool resources, like for example, the Atlantic Ocean isn't actually owned by anyone. Um, the Antarctic. Um, and that's a common pool resource. Um, there's, you know, some, there's common land still in this country, not a lot, but there's still, there's still um, that. Uh, the difference though, is the common pool resource could be degraded, polluted, vandalized. Um, you know, you can see what's happened to the sea in terms of the plastic and the fish and who's actually governing it, who's, who's managing it, who's cleaning it up there's a lot of abuse going on. It's being degraded because nobody's actually looking after it. So if you have a common pool resource that's not privately owned or not owned by a state, um, that can be actually made commons if you can uh, uh, achieve a group of stakeholders who, who want to actually, in a, in a way, take charge of it, steward it, look after it um, for the common good. So they would form a management system, a governance system, uh, to do that. So you can see that, for example, with um, community land trusts. You know, the community land trust secures a piece of land. That land actually is put into common ownership with a legal structure. Um, it gives a lease uh, to people to uh, build a, uh, some houses on it. Um, but actually, the land itself is held in common. Okay, so that, that's, that's, that's one. There are many, many examples. Um, but it's actually something that's become more, um, uh, in, 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 at least in debate and discussion, in recent years, since Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize for her book, Governing the Commons, where she gave many, many examples um, to prove that there are over a billion people on the planet whose livelihoods depend on commons. And most of those people are in Africa. If their land is lost, if it's enclosed, if it's privatized and it's lost, then they, they, they will go the way of the, the, the commons in the UK, where most of the land over centuries was lost through enclosure. You know, yeah, I, I, I remember, enclosure. sorry, I remember um, at university we had a, we had a session on uh, Garrett Harding, the tragedy of the commons, and who said that, um, you know, common resources are always going to be degraded because people will try and, you know, they'll try and cheat. They'll put more cattle on than they should, and it will always be degraded. And then Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who I haven't read yet, um, um, she opposed that position, didn't she? Yeah, she, she not only opposed it, she disproved it. So he wrote his thesis in an article in Science Magazine in 1968. And it was basically said, it was called the tragedy of the commons, that commons are declining because basically they're not an efficient um, way of providing uh, for people. The only efficient system really is uh, 
well, you, the state can provide, a market can provide, but the commons basically was, um, you know, it's historically going, going to be obliterated. That's the tragedy of the commons. Uh, because as you say, um, if, if, if nobody's looking after it properly, if nobody owns and controls it and, and stewards it, then of course, um, you know, it's, it's problematic. You know, it, it'll, it'll be over, over grazed and over polluted and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But she went out, Eleanor Ostrom said, no, I don't think that's right. So she went and researched in the 1970s and the 80s um, places, you know, all over the planet that were actually managing natural resources uh, in a different way that wasn't managed by the state, it wasn't managed by the market. And she found, for example, alpine forests um, that, and, and meadows and rivers uh, in Switzerland that had been managed for hundreds of years by common rights. She also found the same thing in the Philippines where uh, people were managing fisheries with commons rights. So what commons rights are are three things. There's a resource, which is basically the common pool resource, whatever that be, fish, uh, meadows, rivers, whatever. Um, you've got stakeholders who have an interest in preserving the commons. Those could be local farmers or fishermen, or they could actually be local citizens. And you agree a set of rules. So those things, th those three things combined, people as stakeholders, the commons resource, and a set of agreed rules that people have to abide by to protect the commons against what uh, David Bollier who's written about the commons has said, protect them against vandals, shirkers, uh, and other wreckers, basically, uh -huh, free, uh -huh. free riders. So the, most, so the most basic commons are, are gifts to all of us from nature, fresh air and water and sunlight and, and the open seas. Um, and the beauty of nature, sunsets, nobody owns the sunsets, and capitalism hasn't found a way to enclose these yet. Well, it has with water, um, but they can't stop you harvesting the rain. Yeah. Um, so there's common land and common natural resources. What about... Uh, also, what about seeds? What about software? Yeah, so that's what I wanted to talk about, digital, digital commons. And what about welfare state? You know, there, there, there are a lot of things that actually are uh, commonwealth uh, that haven't been privatized uh, yet. Uh, but at the moment, almost everything that's not um, uh, yet privately owned is threatened by enclosure. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's, it's a growing and um, relentless threat to um, the sort of things that we take for granted because um, we've, we've always had access to them. But when, when, you know, when the access is, is blocked, when, you know, that's, that's why, um, you know, the whole, you know, the open source software movement, um, the free, the free, the free software movement arose to protect, um, you know, uh, you know, that our, our data and things like that from being, being privatized. So the free and open source software movement is an example of, of the commons. Yeah. And yeah. what about Wikipedia, Wikipedia as well? Wikipedia is a good example. Absolutely. Any other, any other examples? Uh, well, I, for example, um, in India and in Andhra Pradesh, um, farmers have been actually developing seed banks. So to protect um, the, the property rights of seeds um, in different plants um, from being, um, you know, taken over by GM companies and others wishing to eradicate common ownership of, of, of seeds. Um, there's in, in Peru, um, a group of uh, 
basically um, grassroots movement has, has set up a potato park to protect different varieties of Peruvian potatoes. Where, of course, <laughs> that part of Latin America is where all the potatoes come from. Um, so there, there, there's, there's a really interesting um, movement of, common, uh, of, of, of commoners um, doing different things to protect different resources all over the planet and becoming more and more aware um, that there's a, there's a kind of a, that, that they need to be united. They need to be united in, the, in a wider movement that kind of aligns them together to protect so, the Commonwealth. So the economy is split into the market sector and the state sector, but the, the commons is a, is a third type of economic sector? We tend to think in terms of, you know, as part of the kind of the post-war um, mixed economy, you know, post-World War II mixed economy way of looking at the world, we always tend to think of, well, you know, if you want anything done, you have to look to the state or you need to look to the business community. Okay, at the margins, we can look to um, charities and, you know, uh, the, this third sector. But actually, um, the, the argument, uh, the commons movement is actually the commons as a governing, a governance system, as a system for provisioning to actually help people uh, uh, reproduce, you know, eat and, and build houses and, and kind of develop software and do all the sorts of things that the economy does either, you know, driven by the agency of the state or driven by the agency of the market, that the commons is, is, is a disempowered part of the sector that's taken for granted. You know, what would happen um, uh, if, um, you know, look at, look, at, look at social care, for example. You know, people talk about social care and, and, and people are paid appallingly low wages to, to be carers today with austerity. But actually, you know, something like 90% of care is actually done by family members and friends. You know, that's actually a common resource. Um, it's not counted because it's not monetized. So it's not, not paid anything, but that, that's, that, you know, the whole world would fall apart if, if, if people started stop, you know, practicing mutual aid and friendship and, and gifting and reciprocity and all those sorts of things that is just part of the sociology of, you know, how societies kind of hold together. Are commons always free? Um, well, I mean, commons can... Yeah, I mean, free in the sense of, but that doesn't mean that they, they, they can't charge for, um, you know, the, the need to, uh, to, to maintain them. So in, in that sense, I think uh, cooperatives are a kind of a form of commons, potentially. I mean, they... they cooperatives they, are a form of commons, okay. Well, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're, you're developing common wealth, you're developing, so, so for example, a worker co-op, Worker cooperatives are developing a common a commonwealth asset. You know, so for example, the industrial common ownership movement, which was developed in the seventies, was trying to increase the number of of um, worker co-ops in this country. And there were, you know, when the act was passed during the period when Tony Benn was um, at the Department of Trade and Industry in the seventies, the Industrial Common Ownership Act was to promote worker cooperative ownership. M much more of that. And they set up cooperative development agencies later, a few years later. And by about 1990, the, the number of worker co-ops had grown from like 100 or so um, 
in the mid 70s to 3000. So there actually had been this growth of common ownership businesses. But then the policy changed and moved away from that. And of course the number of worker co-ops has got that gone down to under 500. So we've shrunk the number of worker co-ops because the movement developed common ownership of the means of production uh, through worker co-ops, um, lost policy support, lost government support, um, lost the CDAs, lost money, local authorities cut their budgets, but they were trying to develop common ownership of the means of production, mm. you know, through work. So that's important. Um, so talking about definitions, d defining terms. Um, so I never thought of, co I thought of cooperatives as one sector and the commons as another sector. And you're, say you're saying maybe that cooperatives come under the um umbrella of the commons. Um, so I'm just trying to, trying to work out <laughs> what, the, what the map looks like. And maybe commons could enclose everything really, if, if, the, the kind of economy that we're, we're, we're trying to achieve. Remember when when um, the cooperative movement began? Okay, if you look at the kind of the early days, the 1820s, that's when enclosure was happening at a rate of knots. The, you know, there were thousands of acts of enclosure um, in the century leading up to kind of 1850, and land was being lost. Cities were um, attracting people to work in factories, the tonic mills, and all the rest of it. And Robert Owen and others, um, you know, other developers of the commons movement, uh, they were articulating a vision, uh, which is the basis of social, of sociology. So they, they, were, they were inventing a social science that's different from economic science. And they, they were arguing for that land should be in common ownership, um, that the means of production should be in common ownership. And they're also working on solutions that would actually create money in common ownership. So those are three things. The idea was how do we take people out of the market? So how do we get beyond wage labor? How do we take money out of the market to get, get beyond interest uh, and usury? And also how do we take land out of the market so that actually um, we don't have this massive enclosure of land, which is actually creating all this poverty because people have nothing to sell but their wage labor, okay? So they've yeah. been dispossessed. So to actually, um, create commonwealth, you basically have to reverse enclosure. You've got to kind of turn the resources, make them, you know, open access, right? And how do we do that? Uh, well, cooperatives are a very key point of the, um, of the mutual aid struggle to create uh, commonwealth again. So, okay, the term cooperative commonwealth picked up, picked up a residence in the latter half of the 19th century. And even, for example, when uh, Labour found its built its constitution, I think it was about 1918, and, and put in Clause 4. Well, Clause 4 was about national ownership, but it was also about common ownership, okay? So it recognized that actually national ownership could be good, that could be public ownership, but cooperative common ownership could be good as well. That we were trying to actually, you know, democratize the means of production. And decentralize, and decentralize the, the ownership and the governance of resources. But especially the cooperative movement was arguing for the decentralization. So there was this, there's an argument there. Um, for example, Stephen Yeo's new book, um, which is coming out, out about the three forms of socialism, says actually there's three forms of socialism. There's a core parliamentary socialism, 
Labour MPs, for example, um, there's actually the welfare state, you know, which of course is a type of collective socialism, you know, that we all benefit from the NHS and things like that. What's left of the of, of the, well, the post-war welfare state, it's all under threat at the moment. Uh, and then, of course, the other element uh, to it was what were was associational socialism. So associational socialism is working class self-help organizations. So, for example, trade unions, mutuals, cooperatives, all created friendly societies, all created by working class people to provide for themselves when the market couldn't give a tinker's cuss about them. Because mm. they didn't so, so you use the word socialism, and that's you know that's guaranteed to scare off the right, um, and the, the right comprises maybe half the population. So um, the thing that I've you know I've talked to people on the right, um, the, the 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 co-op movement it encompasses a free market, and actually uh, a cooperative market, a cooperative economy is a freer market than the one we've got now. The market that we have now is not free at all because because uh, money is so concentrated in the corporate sector that it overflows into the political system and corrupts it. They, you know, political donations, jobs for politicians, the lobby industry. It's absolutely not a free market. Whereas a cooperative economy would be a free market. So there's nothing there to scare the right. It's not a capitalist market, but it's a free market. So it could be embraced by the right. Do you see what I mean? Well, of course. I mean, the 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 you know, I mean, there's all sorts of um, people on the right who um, you know take you in the direction of Mussolini, aren't there? So you know, you know, so that's a, a type of um, uh, socialism for uh, one part of the population. You know, in, in in terms of the way that fascism interpreted that. But a decentralized, a decentralized, not a sort of centralized fascist state, but a decentralized. Um, neither left nor right market economy, the, the components of which are actually democratic and non-extractive, i.e. cooperatives or something very similar, Self, including self-employed people. Self-employed people are obviously, it's a democratic institution and it's non-extractive. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's necessary to, to really get, put ourselves in opposition to the right. I, know, I think there are lots of right people on the right who would be perfectly happy with a with a democratic, non-extractive economy. I think it also, it depends on what you, what you, I mean, for example, in the, in the cooperative Commonwealth framework that I'm, our, I'm, I'm, I'm laying out here, uh, what's different is that there is a recognition that, um, that personal property up to certain limits is okay. Um, but beyond those limits, then um, you run the, you, you, you can readily run into a, a situation where people who have houses, who have more houses than they need, um, they become landlords and they use their, um, their, their housing stock or, you know, so. Well, that's so extractive. That's extractive right, right exactly, away. That's extractive, isn't it? So it doesn't, exactly. it wouldn't, so it wouldn't it qualify. There should be a limit to property rights and certain things actually shouldn't be, shouldn't be um, uh, privately owned like land. If you privately own land, um, you, you're, you're setting up the potential to rack rent people. You know, so a community land trust, for example, by taking land out of the market can reduce by half the cost of housing because you don't have to yeah. buy the land. Yeah, I, I recently came across the philosophy, I recently came across the philosophy of geo-libertarianism, 
which says that nobody should own the land. It should be a resource for all of us. And if you want to use it to farm it, then you pay some sort of a compensation to your community for the fact that nobody else can use that land because you're using it. Um, yeah. And it's sort of, you know, Henry George, Georgism, um, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Uh, so, so if you're a massive landowner, um, you're, you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you a lot to your community to own that much land. And, and, and um, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting concept. Well, that's the idea of land value tax. So you yeah. tax, you tax, it basically, it's a way of trying to um, tax the land, the, the surplus land, out of private ownership and bring it back into Commonwealth. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. it could be applied that way. Yeah. Um, the, the, so, the, um, so basically, there's a big difference between John Locke's theory of private property, which could be infinite, which is the libertarian right view, mm, yeah. um, and the... The, the Robert Owen view or the cooperative view, which said, no, there's certain things that actually should be actually brought into common ownership, like land, like money, for example, yeah. like the means of production. Doesn't the democratic and a non-extractive label nail it though? Any, anybody who tries to sort of, you know, accumulate huge areas of land and then, and then rack rent farmers to, who are actually doing useful work, whereas the landowners aren't, they're just extracting wealth from the farmers who are doing the useful work. Yes. I think the, the interesting thing there is that the argument for um, the argument against unearned income yeah. is an interesting argument yeah. um, because the early economists, um, you know, had this. They talked about earned and unearned income because they used the labor theory of value yeah. until the eighteen. You're talking about you're talking about Ricardo and Adam Smith. Yeah. So, but also that's where that's where the. Um, you know, the socialists like Owen and, and, the, and the early socialists use the labor theory of value to develop the concept of, you know, socialism, democratic I thought, socialism. I thought and, it was interesting that Adam Smith and Ricardo brought up the subject of um, the, the labor theory of value. But it was, I think they, were talk, they thought they were just talking to other academics and, and you know, the working class would, they did, didn't read and probably couldn't read. And then Marx came along and took the labor theory of value, said, thank you very much. And he, he, he explained it to the working class and uh, yeah, in ways that they wouldn't have uh, really approved of. Yeah, there were people who, who well before that in the 1820s, like William Thompson, for example, uh, was one of the founders of the co-op movement. But he was very clear on, um, on, on um, you know, how the labor theory of value could be really empowering for uh, working people. Um, and peasants and, and you know, the, basically the whole working class. So, Oh, right. So people were saying it at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mar Marx's ideas come really from those re what sometimes called Ricardian socialists, but they were, they were people who were working, developing a labor theory of value for, for working people, for, um, for basically to create a cooperative society. And, and I, can't see anything, I can't see anything wrong with the labor theory of value. People, people say, oh, it's old-fashioned, it's past its sell-by date. But if you really, really look into it, it seems pretty solid to me. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> there's books and books about that. You know, uh, do, you know this, yeah. do you know this guy, Kevin Carson? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The, sub, the subtitle to his book here is, it's the, the Mutualist Political Economy. The subtitle is, The Natural Wage of Labor is Its Product. So he's saying that really clearly. It, it all belongs to the people who, who, who created it. Yeah, no, I, I think he, Kevin's done some, some very interesting work. And I've, 
had some email correspondence to him. He did a review of that of, of our book, of the Resilience Imperative, a, a very you know very good review. So um, yeah, there's lots of interesting things that he's trying, to, but yeah, he's trying to you know revive a kind of a, a mutual economy perspective. Um, which was part of you know the concept of cooperative and mutual enterprises I was talking about earlier, and as a framework for um, developing um, a way of thinking about um, the uh, the non this non-extractive economy that we're trying to build 